Well, I don't know whether it's good news to you or not that there are other things in the news competing with the coronavirus, but in case you haven't heard, we are nine days away from our neighbors to the south going to the polls to vote on, among other things, which man will lead their country into the future for the next four years. And regardless of the chaos that has already swirled around this election season, you can be bet that the next nine days and maybe month or two is going to be a wild ride as people pull out all the stops to get their guy in office. And the reason is because we have become convinced that the best way to move ourselves and our community into our preferred future is to get the right person in the right office at the right time, making the right decisions for the future. That, that finding the right person to implement the future we desire is the best way to guarantee the future that we hope for. And the question that swirls around every election is what kind of person is the right person to lead us into the future? And that's actually the question that swirls around the text that we're going to look at this morning, a text that I hope you stopped to read in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Last week, Austin Channing Brown invited us into the book of Exodus by looking at the story in Exodus chapter 1 and 2 of the rescue of baby Moses from Pharaoh's genocidal program to wipe out all Israelite male children to and under in order to protect his own political power and his economy and, and so on. And as she told the story, Austin Channing Brown pointed out the ways in which we, like Pharaoh and the Egyptians, are often motivated by fear, fear of Loss of control, fear of a, a future that isn't desirable, fear of diminished lifestyle, fear of violence, whatever it is, we're motivated by fear to separate ourselves from people who are different than us so that we can justify choosing our own future at the expense of somebody else. But she pointed out how in the story there was this community of five women People who lacked all social and political power and capital, but who conspired together to undermine the plans of the powerful and the strong. To push back against the system of injustice and say, not on our watch. And Austin Channing Brown challenged us to say no to the Pharaoh of fear and to say yes to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, who is ushering in a kingdom of love and justice into the world. And the question that now hangs in the air is, what kind of person does it take to participate in the coming of that kingdom of love and justice? And that's what this week's passage is all about. It starts in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, where it says this, One day, after Moses had become an adult, he went out among his people and he saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Moses, who has grown up in the palace of Pharaoh under power and privilege that, um, that comes along with that, leaves the palace, whether or not it's the first time or the millionth time, he leaves the palace to see how the Israelites were being treated. That was 
He's an Israelite by birth, raised as an Egyptian, and he sees how they're being treated. Whether this was the first time he saw it or the first time that it penetrated his heart, we don't know. But he was moved by what he saw. It says he looked this way and that when he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and he grabbed the Egyptian and beat him to death and buried his body in the sand. It's interesting to read the account because some of the language used of Moses that Moses saw and that he struck the Egyptian, that's the very language that the book of Exodus will use later on to describe God's actions in setting Israel free from oppression in Egypt. There's something primal and instinctive in Moses that Moses has this longing for divine justice to rule. And Moses, you know, acts out of that compulsion to see the justice of God take root in his community. Now, his action is to commit an act of vigilante violence. And we know the truest thing about God's justice is what we see revealed in Jesus Christ, who was someone who would rather die for his enemies than kill them. But Moses Whatever we make of his choice, Moses is driven by this compulsion to bring divine justice into the world. And yet, Moses fails. There are three moments of justice in this passage we're going to look at. And in the first two moments of justice, he fails. He sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite and he wants to rescue this Israelite and Israel from the violence of Egypt And yet he fails. It says in that moment, he describes the Israelite as his people. He sees how the Egyptians are beating his people. It's an interesting comment, given that Moses was raised in the power and privilege of the palace, a, um, a system that perpetrated oppression on Israel. And yet when Moses looks at Israel, he sees his people. He chooses to live in that moment in solidarity with them. He rejects his Egyptian identity of power and privilege and chooses to stand in solidarity with the oppressed. It says in Hebrews 11, reflecting on this story, by faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter when he was grown up. He chose to be mistreated with God's people instead of having the temporary pleasures of sin. Moses says, this is my identity and upbringing. This is who I have been an Egyptian and royalty and power and privilege. And he says, I don't want to be that anymore. I want to identify with this community. And so whether out of passion in the moment or in a premeditated way, he looks around and he murders the Egyptian, but fails to bring justice. He he does virtually nothing to help Israel be freed from the oppression that they were living under. There's a second moment. It says shortly after he went out and he saw two Israelites fighting. The same word is used. The Israelite, one Israelite was beating another. They were now doing to each other what the Egyptians had been doing to them. And Moses experiences the same visceral response where he wants to see justice. And he steps in and he says, the text says, to the one who was in the wrong, why are you doing this? That phrase, the one who was in the wrong, that is actually a, a, a technical term for the ruling of a judge in a civil matter, deciding which 
party was in the right and which one was in the wrong. Moses was assuming the position and posture of judge over these two Israelites, assuming the right to adjudicate their case. And they look at him and say, who, who do you think you are? You're not a judge. You're not an elder. You're not a part of our community. You're not authorized to intervene in this situation. Nobody has given you leadership. You have no voice. With, you don't even understand what's going on. You don't have the right to speak into the situation. See, Moses assumed that his power and privilege in the palace as an Egyptian was going to authorize him to be a voice in the community. Yet in our staff environments, we've often said, uh, as a staff, authority is given, not taken. It is not something you have because of your power and privilege. I say this as a middle-aged, relatively wealthy, white, cisgendered, heterosexual male who has every advantage laid at my feet. None of that gives me authority or power to be the solution to somebody else's problem with injustice. And they reject Moses. Two scenarios where Moses is trying to be the peacemaker that Jeff talked about a month ago. He was trying to be a peacemaker in advocating for justice uh, under the Egyptians. He tried to be a peacemaker in advocating for unity among the Israelites. And he failed in both instances. And this is the reason why he wasn't the person for the hour. Because in both instances, he was operating out of the arrogance of his power and privilege. He was operating out of the strength that he had in the system. And in neither instance was he able to participate in God's justice coming. Now, there's a third story in the text. Pharaoh hears about Moses' murderous vigilantism and puts a bounty on his head. And Moses has to flee the country for his life. And he ends up living as an immigrant and a refugee in a place called Midian. And it says in Exodus 2, verse 16, now there was a Midianite priest who had seven daughters. And the daughters came to draw water and fill the trough so that their father's flock could drink. But some shepherds came along and rudely chased them away. Moses got up, rescued the women, and gave their flock water to drink. Moses finds himself confronted with another scenario of injustice where the work of the societally weak was being stolen to benefit the politically strong. The work that this, these women had done was now being stolen by these male shepherds to benefit themselves. And Moses, once again, it says he got up and rescued two words that describe the activity of God in rescuing Israel from slavery. He's motivated again by this divine primal sense for God's justice to flow. And yet this time Moses is successful. What's the difference? Maybe you could say it was a difference in method. That instead of, you know, this vigilantism, this violence, that Moses instead chose to disrupt the system of injustice without being violent. Maybe. I think the difference is more in Moses himself. Where in Egypt, Moses was operating out of the arrogance of power and privilege. In this instance, he was operating out of the humility of what it means to be weak and vulnerable. 
See, Moses no longer had the power and privilege of growing up in the palace in Egypt. He no longer had political clout. He no longer had standing in the community. He was a refugee and an exile. He was someone without a people, someone without a place, someone without the protection of the community. Suddenly he knew firsthand from his own experience what it was like to suffer as a weak and vulnerable person who relied on the help of the community for justice. And it was operating out of that place of humility where he became Instead of the hero who swoops in to be the solution to everybody's problem, suddenly Moses is now just a good relative helping the community. I use the phrase good relative because um, it says in the text that Moses, these daughters introduce Moses to their dad and he marries one of them and has kids and becomes family and becomes a part of the family business. He actually just fully identifies no longer with the power and privilege of Israel, but with this weak, vulnerable community of outsiders and says, no, now I am fully a part of you. I'm going to live as a relative to you. Now, he never stopped being an Egyptian when Moses' daughter or Jethro's daughter introduces him. She calls him an Egyptian. That's still fundamental to his identity. And at some level, that's hard to shake. But he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you my family and live with you in the midst of your weakness and vulnerability and work together with you for justice. And I think that's the invitation that God is calling us. What does it take for us to be the person of the hour? What does it take for us to be able to participate in the justice of God? I think, number one, we have to disavow our participation in a system of injustice and oppression. We have to distance ourselves from our privilege. Moses knew what it was like to experience the pleasure of benefiting from a system of sinful and evil oppression. He participated in it. He benefited from it. He was a part of it and it, and it made his life better for him, even though it was violence on other people. And there came a moment in time where Moses said, that's not going to be my identity anymore. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to participate in that system willingly or voluntarily anymore. I think we have to learn to disavow our addiction to political power. Honestly, I think politics is the fastest growing religion in North America. We, even in the church, have become convinced that political power is the pathway into the future that God has for us. And you can see it playing out in the news all the time as the church engages in the kinds of dirty politics that a generation or two ago, we, you know, would have said, denounced as ungodly. And yet now there was a Pew Research poll among people who identify as Christians that said the vast majority of people who identify as Christians will vote in the next election purely to advantage themselves and their own community, even at the disadvantage of other people, that only a minority of people who identify with Christ would, would use their vote to advantage a community that wasn't them. That's just not Christian. I think we need to learn, like Moses, 
to step away from our identity of power and privilege, the identity that benefits us because of our participation in a sinful system of oppression. And we need to learn to live in solidarity with those who have been oppressed by that system, who are suffering violence because of that system. I think secondarily, like Moses, we need to disavow this notion um, that the savior complex that those of us who have grown up with power and privilege live with. Moses had this idea that because he had power and privilege in Egypt, that somehow he was authorized to be the solution to everybody's problems, that his his actions and his words, they were what was going to make the difference and bring justice where there was injustice and so on. And that just simply wasn't true. That never worked for Moses because it doesn't work. We need to recognize that we can only participate in the coming of justice when we stop imagining ourselves to be the solution to everybody's problem and instead learn to live in solidarity as good relatives to those who are suffering violence and oppression, to sit and to listen to people's stories, to learn from their experiences, to live in relationships of loving devotion with them until they can trust us enough to invite us to participate with them in their journey of justice until we are authorized by them to be a part of their journey. Disavowing power and privilege, disavowing a savior complex, this is precisely what it means to follow Jesus. In in Moses' best moments, you can see Jesus in the way that he participates in God's justice. It says in Philippians 2, adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit to his own advantage, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and becoming like human beings. The apostle Paul says, consider what Jesus was like. Jesus was literally endowed with all the power and privilege that comes along with being God himself. And he could have exploited that power and privilege to his own benefit and advantage in perpetuity for eternity. And yet the self-sacrificing love of Jesus said, no, I will not use power and privilege for my own advantage. Instead, What Jesus did was set aside his power and privilege in order to become a part of our community, to join us in the weakness and vulnerability of humanity. Born as a baby, born poor, born to a nobody family from a nobody clan in a nobody nation in the ancient world, born without privilege or status or standing or power, entering into the world in solidarity with us so that Jesus, by his life and teaching and death and resurrection, could journey with us towards God's loving justice coming into the world. Now, Jesus is the only person who never has to disavow the Savior complex because it is only through Jesus' life and teaching and death and resurrection that we are actually free from sin 
We're free from our sinful participation in sinful systems of injustice. Jesus' teaching and life and death and resurrection actually has the power to break those systems and to bring justice and equality to all through actions of loving self-sacrifice executed in community together where none of us are the solution to everybody's problem, but each of us together in community rely on the power of God through Jesus by the Holy Spirit operating in us to unleash the power of Jesus together. None of us is the solution to the injustice issue in the world. None of us is the person of the hour who can lead us into God's preferred future for us only Jesus. So how do we become the person of the hour? Not by operating out of power and privilege in arrogance, believing that we're the solution to everybody's problem, but instead in weakness and vulnerability, living in solidarity with those who have been disempowered by society, trusting in Jesus to use us to work through the community to break the power of injustice in the world. When we learn to be that, only then will we get to participate in God's justice in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is not hard to see the way the world is broken. It's not hard to see the sin uh, in us to see the sin in those of us who have power and privilege in our participation in the systems that do violence and oppression to others. It's not hard to see the way the structures of the world are broken. And yet Jesus came and lived and taught and died and was raised to break the power of sin in the world. Would you let your loving justice roll like a river? And would you teach us to be the kind of people who can get swept up in that river together and be carried to your loving kingdom? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.